This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure, Moray, and iRise for their sponsorship of Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IDEA Conference. For the past year, Lisa Reichelt has been working with colleague Mark Bolton to redesign Drupal.org and then with the community to address the most significant user experience issues with the open source content management system. In this presentation, Lisa shares her war wounds and learnings from their work with the Drupal community, as well as some of the questions and challenges for both designers and the open source communities at large. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Good morning. Thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? Yes? Yes. Yeah, thank you. This is something quite different to what Luke just did. I can promise you I've got pretty much no data at all in my presentation. And more inter more differently, I guess, I'm not so much talking about designing social places, but kind of designing in a social place. I want to share with you the experience that I've had over the past six months or so working with the Drupal open source software community. Um, and we've been working with them on developing a new user interface for Drupal 7, which is their new release. Uh, Code Freeze was just the other week, and we're expecting it kind of out in the field, hopefully in the first quarter or so of next year. I'm going to start by showing a little bit of video, so um, hopefully the audio is working, because we actually shot this in the British Library in the cafe. The production values are not great. It was recorded on my MacBook, and it was never really intended for use in this kind of environment. So hopefully you can make sense of, of the kind of crumply audio. Let's see how it goes. We're going. So, up until this point, we've been working with the Drupal community for going on for six months now. We've been feeling our way around the Drupal community, around what it is to be part of Drupal. Um, and for the past month or so, we've been working on the Drupal 7 UX project. And we've been quietly working away in the background, trying to get our head around everything that that project entails. But we've reached a point now where we need your help, and we need it right now. On the back of this, really, is, is the inescapable truth that the Drupal 7 user experience is completely broken. And we need to fix it. Um, and you know, it's, Drupal's been around for a long time. As this says here, it's nobody's fault. This happens. But we need to fix it together. And we need to do it as soon as we can. And it just so happens, <laughs> as this says, we're working on the Drupal 7 user experience project. We need your help. We don't need it in six weeks' time or two months' time. We, we need your help right now. The biggest risk to this project currently is your rejection of our ideas too late in the process. That is the biggest risk. We can deal with 
tight deadlines, limited resources, limited budget, and limited time. What we can't deal with easily is the rejection of some of these core principles of the concepts. Right now, we, we, it's difficult. This isn't about us being kind of primordial designers and, and not wanting to take any rejection. We, we want your rejection. Yeah, we do. Please we want your rejection urgently right now. Um, perhaps something that will kind of explain this is, is this idea. I presented this at Drupal Camp and I pull it out whenever I can. This is our um, layers of user experience. This is basically how you make user experience. Starts right down the bottom at proposition, works your way up through concept, structure, information, interaction to appearance. So you've got really fundamental user experience stuff at the bottom, and towards the top, you start looking at stuff that we typically think about as being usability. So right now, if you've been following along, Mark and I are working at that kind of proposition concept level and, and starting to move into structure. So we've been looking at things like what the experience strategy is, how we understand our audience, that kind of thing. So really core, basic, fundamental, proposition, conceptual stuff. And now, if you saw our last video, just starting to move into sort of concept structural stuff. Now, on the other hand, there's a whole bunch of work that's going on in the issue queues and other places like that, mostly in the issue queues. And this is where, where your energy is going at the moment if you're, if you're working on D7 usability or with them. Uh, it's up around this appearance and interaction kind of level. So this is, you know, what should that button be called? Where should it go? Those kind of questions that address some of the big, big usability issues that have come out of recent usability testing. This is where a lot of energy is going. Now, the, the problem with this is that we're never going to create an amazing Drupal 7 user experience by solving one tiny issue at a time. Where we need to be putting our energy right down is here, at, at the conceptual level, at, at the structural level, really making sure that that's completely sound. If we don't get that right, then all of the work that we do and all of the work that you do is going to kind of end up looking like this, which is the last thing that we want. We're here to try and make Drupal 7 as amazing as we possibly can for you, which is why we really need you right now to engage with us down here. It's, we're in a really fortunate position, a really exciting, you know, this is a big deal and we, we have a tremendous opportunity to make something really, really special. And, but we can't do it alone. Um, we, we, need, we need you to help us, we need you to help us right now. Um, and we have lots and lots of ways for you to get involved yep. and to help. But, you know, th there's a lot of really rubbish stuff out there at the moment. We can work together to make something really amazing, but we've got to work on it right now, and we've got to work on it in the right way. So please, 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 come get involved now. If, if, if we fail, we're all going to fail together. So let's, let's not do that. So what should you do? Come and find out. We've got this little little place that we've set up. We only just set it up about 15 minutes ago, so hopefully you can actually reach it by now. All that that does is kind of give you a little bit of an overview of, of where we're doing all of the stuff. But come find out. Get involved. Please. We <laughs> come reject us now. Yeah. Don't don't come That's back it. in three don't months' time. Reject us, time. In two reject reject us right now. now. Okay. We really look forward to working with you.
I was tempted just to play you a sequence of video after video after video after video, and then I wouldn't have to kind of talk very much at all because these these little missives to the community were a really important part of our strategy. I I kind of enjoy looking at that video again now because I can almost smell the naivety, and also because we've got so many fewer wrinkles and so many fewer grey hairs. Um, that was right at the beginning of the of the D7 UX project, and. Um, and you know, we, we, we were a lot less emotionally scarred back then. But at the same time, you, know, you kind of get a sense that we kind of knew what we were letting ourselves in for. You know, the design challenges associated with Drupal were always going to be pretty challenging. But in actual fact, the biggest challenge of all was, and remains to this day, you know, the community itself. So this is Dries. Dries was the guy who came up with Drupal in the first place, and he's now kind of almost like the godfather of Drupal, and he's a really clever guy. And precisely because Dries has got great technical skills, but also amazing community skills, Drupal continues to exist probably about eight years after it was originally made an open source project, um, and it's continuing to grow. Now, defining Drupal is a fairly hotly contested topic, and this is kind of probably the most official version that I could find, and it was published by the Drupal Association. And they say that Drupal is an open source social publishing platform. I'm not sure if that means very much to you. Um, and it's intended to allow an individual or community or, um, of users whoops, to easily publish, manage, and organize a wide variety of content onto a website. Now, it is very much up to up for debate as to exactly how easy Drupal does make it to publish content on the website. And how many people have had any experience with Drupal? Anyone? Excellent. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. So we can we can we can debate that you know quite a bit. But at the same time, it's really evident that there are a lot of individuals, groups, and organisations who are choosing to use Drupal as you know their tool to accomplish this task. And you know it's everyone from the U.S. government who chose to use it for recovery.gov through to our our friends, the IXDA, who are using it at the moment. I'm working with The Economist right now to move um, their online publishing over from a really creaky old Cold Fusion platform to a sparkling new Drupal environment. And I guess the point is that this is, this is not just a platform that's used by um, open source geeks to you know, create their crazy blogs. It's a really significant player in the content management scene. But it's certainly not known for its good user experience and its ease of use. In fact, quite the opposite. And over the past 12 months, I've had the opportunity to do a bunch of research you know, around, around Drupal and, and talking to people within the Drupal community, but also talking to a lot of people who, who aren't engaged in the Drupal community. And when I talk to those people outside of the community, there's one word that comes up all the time when they describe Drupal. And if, you know, if you're playing a word association game, it would, you know, it would come up probably more than 80% of the time, and that word is scary. And the reason for that is because it's being designed and developed by developers for developers, and also because it has a massive, massive learning curve, and there's, there's not anybody in the world who would deny that. So the D7UX brief was to try to reduce this learning curve and try to increase adoption of Drupal by people who, you know, who don't have advanced PHP skills. D7UX was a really big experiment for everybody involved, certainly for Mark Bolton, who was the guy that you saw in the video there, I probably should have introduced him to you before, and, and, and for myself, but also for the Drupal community. Everyone involved was taking a pretty big risk. 
Um, and it was a big step into the unknown. And the reason for this is that there's a fairly established framework for how you come together as a group of developers to work on an open source software project. But I don't think there's any open source software project out there at the moment who would claim that they've really successfully managed to integrate design and designers into the way that their project works. It's an active and unresolved issue for open source software on the whole. John Gruber actually captured this problem really well in a post that he wrote a few years ago. And he compared um, designing in open source to, to open sourcing a motion picture. He said, if, if you imagine a motion picture produced like a large open source project, different scenes written and directed by different people spread across the world, editing decisions forged by a group consensus on a mailing list, the result would be unfocused and incoherent and unenjoyable. And movies are collaborative art, but they require strong direction, and so it is with end-user software. So there are some examples of open-source software projects that do tend to use quite strong direction in their design approach. Um, and I, I don't think it's any coincidence that these are probably ones that, that everyone's heard of. These, the ones that I'm particularly thinking of are, are WordPress and also Firefox. Both of these projects have got dedicated and paid UX resources. They've both got management who place a really strong premium on good user experience. Now, the Drupalers would probably argue that the reason that both of these projects have much better user experience is because their projects are less complex. And I've certainly heard that argument around WordPress many, many times. And to some degree, yeah, they, they do have a point. But I think far outweighing that is the attitude of the leaders of the projects towards user experience. In, in, these, in WordPress and in Firefox, good user experience occupies a really primary position in the mindshare of the project. It's given priority. The end user and their experience is given much more priority over the desire of the community to write really cool things in code. And, and, and despite that, you know, there's absolutely no shortage of cool stuff being written for WordPress or Firefox. In Drupal land, things are kind of really different to that, though. Design occupies a much lower rank in the pecking order, and it's the rock star developer who is much admired and lauded. For many members of the Drupal development community, pretty much the only end user that they'd ever considered was themselves, or maybe one of their buddies that they talked to on IRC. But we never really had the option to do this project in any other way than in a fairly open way. And, and one of the main reasons for that was that we had some design and development time funded, but actually there was going to become a point where a, a lot of the work would have to be carried out by volunteers within the Drupal organization, within the community. And so we kind of always had to work in a fairly open way. Um, there was a short period of time where we could kind of be, be a little bit like directors um, in a motion picture film, but rather than rather than kind of focus on that role, we really had to spend a lot of time, you know, trying to instill the community, um, instill with them, you know, some of the overall values of the project and, and, and user experience in general, and to try and get their support for the approach that we were advocating. So we knew that ultimately the project would end up being run, you know, in the, the traditional Drupal way, which is as a collection of dozens of issues logged into the issue queue, which is effectively a discussion forum and being gradually debated and developed and deployed by members of the Drupal community. So we had to, we had to find a way to, to design in an open way. And it's a challenging way to design, and in many ways it's incredibly inefficient and far from ideal. But we also thought there were probably some potential fringe benefits. 
We had this thought that perhaps the reason that open source development environments are so unfriendly to design and to designers as a rule is because the people within the open source communities didn't really understand how designers worked and how design happened. So we saw this as being a great opportunity then to transfer knowledge to the community, to kind of throw our doors open and let people watch us work and, and show you know, what designers do and, and, and the process that you go through you know, to help you make good design decisions. And we, we really also hope that by kind of exposing this process of strategic design, when we got down to that issue queue of, of battling out you know, each, each individual item one after the other, we could use some of this strategic work you know, to help answer questions and, and, and maintain some kind of um, some, some coherence. And so in March of this year, work got out of, underway which is to say that our work got underway because actually Drupal 7 had been you know, being designed and developed for many months before we actually got involved. And there was a usability group who were actively, as you would have heard in the video, you know, um, in the issue queues trying to solve one little usability issue at a time. And there was a code freeze date set for September, so time was definitely of the essence. We were working with a, a team of developers um, in a company called Acquia, and they run to a scrum methodology hence the iteration zero. And we had to fight pretty hard to get, in the end, a five-week iteration zero. Um, we used that you know, to do some strategic design work, which was, I think, probably pretty much the first time that anybody's ever done that within the Drupal environment. And in that time, we did a whole bunch of user research inside the community, outside of the community. We tried to create definitions for what our experience goals were, some design principles. We tried to kind of create a framework to understand who the audience was. And we tried, uh, designed a whole bunch of different ways at a really high level as to how we might start solving some of the design problems and ended up with, a, with a, a little bit of a framework that we could then use going forward to get into the detailed design. If you take a look at the kind of documentation that was coming out of, of this strategic process, there's kind of an interesting thing going on, which is that you see this movement from trying to be, for us trying to be really comprehensive and complete in our strategy. Um, to just actually trying to capture and communicate the bare essence of what it is we were trying to achieve in the work. So, for example, this, um, this was our first attempt at an audience segmentation tool, and it became known as the Flappy Paddle tool, or the Dress Me Up Doll tool, depending on kind of where you're coming from. And basically, it's about three or four sheets of paper divided into three and then broken up into the three sections of role, type of site, and number of users, where number of users refers to the admin users. And it allowed us to, to create all of the different combinations of those different three criteria that we could then use to test the design against this kind of vast set of audience needs that, that Drupal had identified for us. And it was kind, kind of a useful tool. I, I sort of enjoyed using it you know, as, as we were going through some of the design. But as a communication device with the community, it was absolutely useless. It's just way, way too abstract. So ultimately, what worked best was Verity and Jeremy, two really brief descriptions of archetypal Drupal end users who were critical to increasing the reach of Drupal, but chronically underrepresented within the community making the decisions. I'd, I'd try really hard not to call these guys personas because we never really went through the process of, of turning, of, of you know, developing personas that was really a kind of pencil sketch description and not much more than that. But they were very much grounded in all of the research that we'd done up to there. And their main role really was just to, to represent 
those end users to, to help create awareness within the community of the fact that there were end users other than developers and that these people were really important to Drupal's obje objective to increase reach and that they come from an incredibly different place when they approached Drupal than what the developer community did. It still remains a really big uphill battle to try and get visibility of these kind of user groups, you know, where these design decisions are actually being made day to day. But Jeremy and Verity made a much better fist of it than the flappy paddle tool ever did. And similarly with our experience strategy, you know, we started trying to write a really nice, concise, kind of concise, um, and, and relatively precise experience strategy that really laid out what we were seeking to accomplish and what our goals were, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, and pe people really did just didn't read it at all. And if they did, they really kind of focused in on some incredibly sort of semantic issues. So we really quickly sort of distilled that down to, to our, our UX principles, or you could pretty much just call them UX sound bites. Because you know, the meaning of these things aren't even necessarily particularly clear. What, what is this 80% that we're talking about, for example? But you get the idea, you get the feel that, for the approach that we're taking. And if you're a member of the Drupal community, you should pretty quickly be able to see that this represents a, a fairly big paradigm shift from the prevailing you know, design philosophy within the community which was that you know, the most important audience is developers and the best thing you can do is to provide more options, more configurability, more flexibility, all the kinds of things that would just send Verity running for the hills. So there were lots of days when we actually kind of felt a lot like we were working on a PR project and not a design project. We spent so much time communicating, trying to find better ways to communicate, and relatively little time designing I don't think we ever kind of really properly tracked this, but anecdotally it felt a lot as though we were spending upwards of 80% of our time just communicating, either the, you know, trying to come up with, with these sort of devices that I've just shown you, or sitting um, in IRC, which has been a great experience, um, and all other different places, just trying to talk to people about what we were doing and why we were doing it and how it was all going to be okay, hopefully. And there were two big reasons why we needed to do this. Partly because we effectively had tens of thousands of clients who were scattered all over the globe and who we could never get into the same place at the same time to make sure that we were actually all on the same page about what this project was, the fact that it even existed, what we were going to do, why we were doing it, all of these kinds of things. So we needed these tools that people could, could just come to whenever they happened to come to them um, and that they would fairly clearly communicate what it is that we were trying to do and where we were on the project. But secondly, you know, it comes back again to the fact that if we wanted our design to ever see the light of day, we had to get the community to take it on as their own. But without um, community, there's no Drupal. And at the end of the day, nothing that we recommended was ever going to be coded up and committed to the project if the community thought it was a bad idea. So we were in this kind of really tough situation, basically trying to say to the community of developers, we're actually going to make Drupal probably a little bit worse for you, but it's going to be much better for Verity and Jeremy, and that in turn is going to be much better for, for Drupal in the whole. And that is a pretty bit, bitter pill for them to have to swallow. And the only way that we could make it in any way palatable was to try to make it rational, and that's part of what this communication strategy was about. So despite our pleas for rapid rejection that you heard from Mark and I earlier, and our ongoing um, you know, efforts to really kind of get this communication out there as much as we could, ultimately the level of engagement that we had at this strategic level was pretty low. And, you know, I, I, it's 
it's not surprising to me in a way, looking back on more sort of traditional projects that I've done, and you know, you guys have probably had this experience as well. For the vast majority of people, this strategic stuff is just way too abstract to have any meaning whatsoever. And everyone really is just hanging out to see what's going to happen to the interface. So that's a really big challenge for us all, I think. Soon enough, though, we did actually move into the production phases. And here we, um, we moved into a series of eight two-week iterations. And this is when we really started to make a lot more use of, of, of you know, social tools that you're probably more familiar with. Um, and this is when the engagement with the community really started to take off, partly as a result of using all of these tools, but also partly because the design just became a lot more concrete for them. One of the first things that we did was we put together a WordPress blog. You can imagine that was a really popular move. We did consider putting a Drupal blog up you know, at the outset, but we didn't have the time or the skills to be able to do it. <laughs> kind of proved the whole point. And we got this thing up in about 10 minutes. So, you know. um, This was one of like, the really important online touch points for us because this was a place where we could invite people outside of the community to come and get involved and come and participate in a, in a sort of relatively safe and non-threatening way. We'll have a look at the, the less safe, threatening place in a moment. Um, and, and to that extent, I actually think it was really, really successful because we did have a lot of people come in and actually turn ideas around that developers had about the way things were and the way that people behaved and what people wanted and all of that kind of thing. And people, people, normal people from the outside world would come in and say, no, I, I don't think that's right at all. You know, I, I understand that where Verity is coming from. You know, Jeremy really exists, all these kind of things. Another thing that we used a lot of, as, as you've seen, is, is video. We use video for a few different reasons. Partly it's because I think for some people, just sitting back and, and watching and listening just makes things a lot more easy to digest than trying to work your way through words and words of text. But also, as much easier for us, we're, we're very used to kind of sitting down in a room opposite our clients and, and, and pitching our ideas and, and presenting them in that way. And, and the, the process of actually having to turn that into text and putting that onto a blog post was a lot just got lost in that process, so it felt much, much richer for us to be able to do it in, in a more kind of traditional design agency kind of way. The other thing that we thought might happen as a result of using video is that we thought that it might give people um, the, the correct impression that we were real human beings, and if you cut us, we would bleed, and if you trolled us too hard, it might make us cry. Um, you know, basically to remind them that they were real people. Um, in reflection, actually, all it did was just give the trollers kind of more material to work with. But I still think that it was probably the right approach overall. Video wasn't just kind of a broadcast medium for us, so it was also a really interactive medium. And we, we, we tried to use it in a bunch of different ways, and the community used it back at us in a lot of different ways as well. One of the ways that I've, I really enjoyed, and, and I'm looking forward to doing more of this in the next couple of months, actually, is to do some crowdsourced usability testing. Um, and, and the way that we did this was that I would provide kind of a little kit of stuff that people needed to know and, and needed to do to be able to run a really short usability test. Then they'd take that kit, go out and find some participants, and go out and, and do some testing, and then they'd upload it so we could take a look at it. I mean, the fact that we had a lot of kind of amateur people going out and doing usability testing meant that we really had to see 
what they were doing rather than just kind of accepting the findings that they came back with. Um, but this was really great for us because it gave us a lot more data points to work with and, and a lot more reach to do this kind of thing across the world without having to do remote usability testing, which personally I just don't enjoy. Um, but it also allowed a lot of people just to have a little go at this. And we really tried to get people to feel as though this is the sort of thing that anybody can do. Anybody can go out and do a little bit of a test of their interface with, you know, people, you know, for whom it's actually designed for and, and you know, they can make amendments based on the feedback that they get, which was kind of a real revelation for a lot of people. And, and there's a newfound enthusiasm for this sort of thing, you know, in the community now in a fairly small way, but, you know, it didn't exist at all before. And hopefully we can really build on that and, and turn it into something that's there as a, as a prevailing um, activity. So it's a design project. Obviously, we need to be able to collaborate around visuals, and, and Flickr kind of seemed like the obvious place to go, given that it was more or less kind of built to facilitate socialising around visual images. And, and again, that's worked really well for us as well. You can see, hopefully you can see, it looks a little bit bright, doesn't it? Then, um, it's, it's not just Mark and I who are posting stuff up and asking for feedback, that the community's really gotten into this idea of getting their ideas down into a visual format, posting it up and, and giving some explanation of it. And you know, we can use things like the comments and the little notes on the images to, to really get a conversation going around, around these, these ideas, which is fantastic. We posted up all kinds of things from really terrible early um, sketches that you know usually would never see the light of day, and now I've got some of my most horrendous wireframes up on Flickr, through to some more kind of formal wireframes, and eventually to some reasonably polished design comps. Um, and then the community kind of posted back with their questions and comments and feedbacks, either with their own images um, or with notes and comments all over ours as well. We had to, um, at one point, kind of do a bit of a restructuring exercise because everything kind of got a little bit wild and loose and people actually found it really distressing not to be able to keep track of everything. So we put together a little bit of a framework and put together some Yahoo pipes and made it more easy for people to actually be able to follow all along in one place. And that really changed the whole tone of the conversation that we were having with the community at that particular point and really helped make it a lot more focused um, and a lot more productive as well, which is great. But ultimately, we were always going to end up in, in the issue queue. And, and so we did, and so we are today. And so our design has gone from you know, these, these strategic ideas through to these kind of nice-looking um, PSD files. And, and now it's kind of broken up into dozens and dozens and dozens of little conversations in a discussion board with, as you can see, no shortage of people wanting to chime in with their opinions on things. Um, it, it's kind of it's, it's necessary in a way because of the limited time that we had to spend on the project. The community did have to pick up a lot of the design work themselves, but unfortunately, you know, as a result of going into this issue queue, a lot of the external voice that we were getting from these other sources has pretty much evaporated, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to keep any sort of focus on Verity and Jeremy. And there's a lot more focus going back onto the developer as you know the ultimate end user again. So. The D7UX design has changed a lot since it left kind of our semi-control and went pretty much into the wild. And um, you know, unfortunately, in my opinion, I, I don't think a whole bunch of the decisions that are being made are necessarily for the best. 
so where does this leave us? You know, the, the project isn't quite complete yet, it won't be for a few months, but you know, there's some fairly clear indicators that we can use to judge the success of this project. I'm deliberately not showing you any screenshots because you know, I don't want us to focus on, on that kind of surface level, which is something that's so easy to do. And also because Drupal 7 does look prettier, it does. It creates the impression of a better user experience, but I have a concern that that might just be a fairly short-lived illusion. We've got some good criteria that we can use to judge whether or not we've been successful. We can ask whether we've managed to privilege Verity, our content creator. You know, have we made her most frequent tasks easier and smoothed over the world of options that Drupal creates? And, you know, have we allowed her just to focus on the tasks that she's trying to achieve? I think perhaps we have a little. Have we been able to maintain a focus on the 80% use case, you know, to stop making it so that every single edge case is given equal priority in the interface? Again, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think we kind of have a bit. Is Drupal 7 going to have a reduced learning curve? Is it going to be easier for non-Drupalers than non-techies to use? Mm. Marginally. A lot of the stuff that we really wanted to get in there, a lot of the things that we really wanted to achieve, for many different reasons, actually aren't going to happen. Does this mean that the D7UX project should never have been run, or that it should have been run differently, or that the designers should have been more familiar with Drupal, which was a, a big kind of cause of debate at the time, or that people who had existing standing within the community could have been able to achieve more? I don't think so. I think that in our hearts, we all kind of knew that the chances of this project actually really succeeding in the way that we wanted it to were fairly remote. But we also knew that something really drastic had to be done about the user experience of Drupal 7. Um, and, and although we might not have reached the UX endpoint that we would have liked to, we've certainly learned an awful lot along the way, both Mark and myself and the Drupal community. And it's acted as a pretty important catalyst for change within the community as well, I think. So I personally learned a lot from this project, a lot about designing, a lot about communities, a lot about the world of open source. One of the things that I learned is that there was in some ways not really a lot that we could do to make the project more successful because of a really important fragmentation that I see happening in Drupal. And it's a fragmentation that's really beyond our control. And it's not, as many would have us believe, a designer-developer divide. I think that that is actually kind of just a symptom of the greater problem, and, but it's something that's kind of really personal and emotional and something that we can angst about a lot. I think within Drupal, it's actually the fact that we're kind of working at cross-purposes because we see the product differently and there's no leadership to define exactly what the actual product is. So developers have invested a lot of time in what they see as Drupal as a framework. So you could compare it to something like Ruby on Rails or something like .NET. It's this kind of framework that you can use to make really cool stuff. And then there's UX people like myself and Mark and others in the community who have been briefed to make Drupal a great experience as a content management system, as a product that you can download and, and you know, make your site work in pretty much exactly what the description that we saw at the beginning said Drupal was. These are two really radically different things with very different end users and very different requirements and, and people will approach them in, in, in remarkably different ways. At DrupalCon, the week before last I think it was, Dries told us that the current plan for Drupal is to proceed along both of these paths, to be both a framework and a CMS product. 
designing an environment that can satisfy both of these needs is pretty much an impossible task, no matter which methodology you employ. This might have kind of started to get a little bit depressing, but I would say, should you have the opportunity to work in this way, I would actually encourage you to consider it. It is challenging in a lot of ways, but along the way, I've also been incredibly encouraged by the feedback that I've received from my peers in the UX community, and especially from people who are either new to the field or are looking to transition, particularly from a development role into a UX role. So many people have told us that, that, that they've learned so much about what UX people do from the work that we've done here. And I feel really privileged to have been able to do even what little we have to promote what we do as, as a profession and to you know, help maybe advance our field just a little bit. Watching us, warts and all, and there were plenty of warts, seemed to encourage people to step up and have a go. And if nothing else, that kind of really made it all worthwhile for me. But of course, be under no illusion that if you do try, try playing the game this way, you will put a lot of skin into the game. You're putting your work out there for critique, and a lot of people will see that as an opportunity to criticise you personally. My skin is so thick these days, I kind of feel a little bit like a rhinoceros. But at the same time, it's been a really great process to try to learn to separate myself from my work and to be able to share my work in its really early formative stage and not be protective and defensive of it. And that's something that's going to benefit me you know, in many other projects that I work on. So you don't want to be doing this kind of work without a support network. I was incredibly fortunate to have Mark Bolton to work with on this project. And without his support, I probably would have gone a little bit nuts. Um, with my friend Venka Mayek, I've set up this little um, community at designintheopen.org, and we're really trying to, to foster a, a, a community of practice across all of the different open source software communities. There's not so many of us designers in any of these individual communities that we can't benefit greatly from actually seeing what other people are trying to do. And there's a lot of different stuff going out there in all of the different projects at the moment. It's a really interesting space to be working in. So if this is your kind of thing, then I, you know, I'd really welcome you to come and join in. But that is pretty much all for me at the moment. Thank you very much. Turn me on. Thank you. We've, we've got time for just a couple of quick questions, and I know that uh, Mr. Robert Jolly has one. If I could find him, that would help. Sorry, yeah, right in front of me. So you mentioned um, having a limited budget to work with, and uh, we've we've dealt with that at Happy Cog as well, working with open source folks. Um, how did you how did you come out after that? Did you feel like it was it was a complete wash? I know you recommended people do that, but as as somebody that needs to you know put food on the table and, and make money, you know, was it was it successful for, for, for you and, sure. and, and those involved? Sure. For speaking for myself, because that's probably the, the only people that I should speak for on the project, I, I was engaged as a subcontractor to Mark Bolton and we had worked out pretty much exactly the amount of time that we were being paid to spend on the project and for that period of time it worked out just fine. But we were nowhere near finished the project and, and what, what happens is that they go okay well that's the end of your work thank you very much you, if you choose you may go now but of course you're so engaged you know you're so involved in the project and and there's a, there's a lot of reasons why it's very difficult just to kind of walk away from it as, as tempting as that is sometimes 
Um, so, you know, at the moment, I, I'm spending a lot of time working with Drupal on trying to get it to be as good as it can be, um, and that's just my contributed time right now. So I, I'm spending a lot less time on it than I did, obviously, when I was contracted to do it, but I'm seeing that as, as some kind of an investment. But, yeah, I, it is... It, it is difficult to make it balance out. Yeah, definitely. Thank mm. you. Sounds like it's kind of like working on a conference. Uh, another <laughs> question? Christian. So, Lisa, I'm interested in that framework versus product problem because the framework sounds like a, a generative environment in which people then build things. So you're kind of one meta level up from what we typically do when we can give people stuff, yep. which I think relates actually to social design too. Um, w could you ever imagine a way in which the, the UX work was focused more on sort of packaged instantiations of the framework, let the framework be funky and developer-centric or whatever, but have sort of a set of kits, like sort of templates writ large that say, oh, are you building this kind of site? And get a, a useful set of defaults that aren't generic for every possible scenario, but are custom to a typical product that can be developed with yeah. that framework. Yeah, there's, there's, there's three things related to that, and hopefully I can remember all three of them, because I always say three and then get to the third one, I can't remember. Um, the first is that at the moment there is this concept of installation profiles, which theoretically, you know, you can say, I want a new site, I want a community site, and it's going to go in and pull together all of the different sort of modules that are associated with that. That's, that, that's something that everyone kind of talks about having promise, but it's very rudimentary at the moment, and, and no energy is being spent there. And it's, I always think it's a bit of a sign when nobody in the community is putting any energy into anything, it tends to be because it's not a really great solution. In, in terms of the, um, you know, say what kind of a site you want and, and choose sort of build it yourself, it's, that's actually one of the things that we were really trying to define as part of, of Drupal 7 UX. We called it the site builder, and we, made, we were designing it especially for Jeremy. And it was, it was designed to do exactly all of that, to sort of hide all of the, the brain-hurting parts of, of Drupal, the taxonomy and the nodes and the um, blocks and, you know, all of, the, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it seems to me that there's no way to, to, to get something as complex as that actually developed by within the community because there's no incentive because that's helping people do stuff that people within that community are now getting paid to do as consultants and as businesses. So incentive is a big kind of problem there. But the third, the third option, which I, which I think is probably the most logical and which is really starting to emerge already, is that you have commercial businesses who operate around the Drupal platform and that, that they then you know, develop um, UIs over the top of Drupal that are really tailored around doing pretty much what we were trying to do in this, in this project. And, and interestingly, Drew's actually founded and, and works for Acquia, who are doing exactly that. They're releasing uh, a product called um, Drupal Gardens. And the whole idea of that is to allow people who aren't, don't have a technical background, who don't understand Drupal, to be able to make a site pretty quickly and easily. And, and that, to me, kind of seems like the logical thing to do, that the project focuses on the framework, and then you have all of these other different products that are developed off the back of that, where the UX people really are spending their time trying to make it as accessible as possible. Okay, we're running tight on time. We're already late as it is, but Joe promises he has a very quick one. You mentioned the uh, conversation queue, and you showed all the different things, uh, but you also mentioned that, in effect, 
that you guys had sort of finished your project or you had gotten to that point. What happens to that backlog, if you will? Who manages it and how do you make sure that those continue to get addressed? What's in, what's out, and who, who has the right to make those decisions? Thanks. The community. It, 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 it turns into it turns pretty much in, into a community thing. There are some people kind of at the top of the chain in the community who are able to choose what gets committed into the project and what doesn't, but they they tend not to kind of make decisions that go against what the community has decided what to do. So it really does it turns into they call it bike shedding, um, particularly around design issues where everyone sort of gathers around and puts in their two cents worth until you know eventually an idea is settled on that's often the idea of the loudest person who's just willing to stay in there and fight it out for the longest. Um, and we certainly have got no control anymore over what goes in and what doesn't. We've, we've got a voice that's equal to anybody else in the community. Um, but what, what, what upsets me the most about that is that a lot of the strategic work that we did isn't kind of really being referred to at all along the way. And I think that's, that's a bit of a problem, is that there's no... There's no framework for discussing these kind of design and UX issues beyond, you know, my own personal opinion, your own personal opinion. What's your experience, and what do you think, and what does your grandmother probably think? Um, and and there's a big opportunity for us to actually create more of a framework around how these discussions are had. But at the moment, it's pretty much a community free for all. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Reichelt. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 Idea Conference. Point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual Idea Conference, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.